We're continuing our Summer in the Psalms this morning by looking at Psalm 1. So if you have a Bible, feel free to open it to the first Psalm. You also see the words on the screen. We have the joy this morning to hear from another preacher. I was waiting for an amen. Amen. Yes, thank you, Dan. Amen. Uh, the Reverend Captain David Keziah. David is a captain in the Air Force Reserve and is also my brother-in-law. My, my sister Katie is here celebrating her birthday today as well. And my parents are here also. So it's, it's a big day for the pews and the Keziahs. Uh, David's going to come bringing the word from Psalm 1. Uh, before he does, let me read the word of the Lord to us. Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Church, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of seeing the waters of baptism stirred. Not only the reminder, but Lord, the proclamation of what all of us should say. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And now, Lord, as the waters of your word flow, we pray that they would reach our hearts. And Lord Jesus, we're reminded you said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes on me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So, Father, we beg for your favor now. Would you come and make your word flow to our hearts, that we might be transformed, and that we might leave this place today as those who are not only recipients and not only those who enjoy your word, but Lord, as givers, those who extend what we enjoy. So do your work now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. Thank you, Pastor KJ, for the opportunity to be here. And jump into the Summer in the Psalms. What a great journey. I know you have already been on as a church, a faith family. And let me just say what a joy it is for us. We consider Alberta Baptist Church. It's our home church. Uh, you all have uh, been with us and walked alongside of us throughout the years. And uh, obviously the Lord has, has uh, molded this church body and, and, and shaped it, changed it. But it's so good anytime we get to come back and... What a joy it has been to be a part of the, the, the story, but also to see 
uh, how the Lord has written this story over the past decade plus, uh, bringing two congregations into one and, and uh, sending out some missionaries to Europe and now calling them back to serve as pastor. And uh, what a joy it is to be just a part of that. And we know the Lord is doing more. And so thank you for that. I want to speak to a few people this morning. Uh, I want to speak to those who are grieving and to those who are gleeful. I want to speak to the one who is stuck and to the one who is making a switch. I want to speak this morning to single people. I want to speak to married people. To the empty nesters and to those with a house full, Keziah say amen. I want to speak to the financially flourishing and also the financially frantic. I want to speak this morning to those who are about to enter middle school and those who are about to enter midlife. I want to speak to those who live close to Main Street and speak to those who live close to Moundville. I want to speak to those right here, present in the house and maybe even some watching at the house. I want to speak to those who are having a mountaintop experience and those who seem to be walking in the valley. I want to speak to those who are delighted in God's presence and even to those who are doubting God's existence. In other words, I want to speak to you. I want to speak to myself. Here's what I want to say this morning. You and I, we need to be Blessed. We need to be blessed. Blessed. We need a blessing. That's a word, isn't it, that's been so often used that aren't we really left with two alternatives? We can either keep using the word that's been used and maybe abused. We treat it, you know, sometimes like a Christian high five. Hey, how you doing? Blessing, brother. I'm blessed. It's been overused and maybe abused sometimes, so we say, all right, let's just shelf the word, or really, we say, no, it's it's such a weighty word, right? I mean, maybe we should just kind of use it, but then go back and explain what we mean by saying that. That's the route I want to take today. We need to be blessed. We need to be blessed. We need to be blessed in the way... Jesus talks about blessing in the Sermon on the Mount when he opens up his sermon in Matthew 5 with the exact word that Psalm 1 gives us as the first word of the psalm. You ever put those two together? The first word of Psalm 1, which is in itself, along with Psalm 2, we'll get back to that in just a moment, which, by the way, if we don't get back to Psalm 2, I give anyone permission, if I'm landing the plane sermonically, Please stand up and say, what about Psalm 2, okay? Because I know me. I know sometimes I won't come back. Please, someone, you have a license. What about Psalm 2? That's what I want someone to say. But Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together form the gateway into the whole hymn book, the whole Psalter. And the very first word, the very first psalm is blessed or blessed. And the very first word of Jesus' Christian manifesto, the kingdom manifesto known as the Sermon on the Mount is blessed, Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the uh, meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are 
persecuted for righteousness' sake, the eightfold beatitude blessing. So let's don't shelf the word blessing, even if the only time you hear it is if it's a soft, derisive word when you see the five-year-old running around and tearing up the whole house and someone says, bless his heart. In other words, someone spank him, please. Someone said that about me a lot, I think. My mom's here in the room to prove that, right? Let's don't scrap the word, right? Let's don't scrap the word. Revelation begins its book as well, right? Blessed are those who who hear the words of this book and read and, and keep what's written in it. You and I today, we need to be blessed. What is blessing? What, what, what is that? You ever read through the Old Testament and come across some stories where you think, why, why do people act that way? I, I do that all the time. And, and I remember one of the stories that often I got hung up on and really in a weird way is the story of Jacob and Esau. You remember that story, Jacob and Esau, Esau and Jacob, they're twins. Esau comes out first, and so he gets the birthright. He gets the blessing, the, the patriarchal blessing that God promised to give to Abraham and his descendants. He gave it to Abraham. Abraham passes it down to Isaac. Now Isaac has two boys, Esau and Jacob. And you remember the story, Jacob, it says, was kind of soft. He kind of liked to stay in the house and do you know, cook and stuff like that. I mean, I'm not, this no kind of gender slur or anything, right? But yeah, you just, Esau was a rugged man, right? What you doing today, Esau? Let's go kill some stuff. You want to go? And you remember that story when Jacob, under the uh, instigation of his mother, deceives old man Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing instead of Esau. You remember that story? You remember how Esau reacts? He comes in and in Genesis chapter 27, verse 38, this big, rugged man's man who's been out all day killing stuff. When he finds out that Isaac has given the blessing to Jacob, What does it say? It says he cried. Word there, cried like a baby's yelping. He cried desperately. And you go on to read the story. Father, he says, don't you have another blessing for me? And it always struck me as strange. What's this rugged man so worked up about by someone uttering three words? Bless you, son. Well, he's worked up because it meant a lot more than bless you, son. What Isaac was conferring to Jacob is what God told Moses to tell Aaron to do to the people of Israel when they are assembled in Numbers chapter 6. Put my name on them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The blessing of God means the favor of God. If you have the blessing of God, it means that God is looking at you with a favorable disposition. 
He is not looking at you with a scowl, with a look of disappointment. He is beaming at you. He is gloating over you. He delights in you. He's pleased with you. That's from God's perspective. And then in turn, since God is favorably disposed towards you, in turn, something happens deep inside of you. You find what you've always been looking for. What's the band who sings, I still haven't found what I'm looking for? I don't even know. Is that Bono? Y'all can look it up later. Okay, thank you. Yes. Something happens. You find it. Because blessing is this deep-seated contentment because God has now looked favorably upon you. And the psalmist says, that's what we need. We need to be blessed in this way. So Psalm chapter 1 and Psalm chapter 2, that's not really coming back to it, just reminding you, all right, really give us portraits of what this blessed person looks like. Who is God's blessing reserved for? What's a picture of the people, of the uh, men, of the women, of the boys and girls? What does it look like for God's favor to rest on an individual, on a people? Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 give us that answer. It's almost like a prerequisite for a syllabus that you look at when you start class. And uh, can I take this class? Well, I haven't had one on one and one on two. I guess I can. It's like Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Can you even sing the rest of these psalms? Psalm 3 through 150. Well, if I don't, if I don't check off Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, I can't. These songs aren't for me. But if Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 is me, and these psalms are for me. The first psalm is sometimes described as a wisdom psalm, and that's in large part because it lays out two ways to live. Two ways to live and only two ways to live. The way of the righteous, which is the way of the blessed, and the way of the wicked, which is the way of the not blessed. And really, when you boil it down, isn't that true in life? There really are two ways to live. I mean, even in literature, right? We read about that Robert Frost, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that's made all the difference. Again, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as he concludes that Sermon on the Mount, entered by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who enter by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Two ways to live. Deuteronomy at the end of Moses' swan song. Choose, I set before you a choice here. Choose life or choose death. There's two ways to live. And the psalmist picks up this theme. This psalm describes the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. These two paths. It begins by describing the righteous person. And the psalm is going to describe the righteous person in three ways. He's first going to describe the righteous person negatively by what he is not. Then he's going to describe the righteous person positively by what he is or what he's characterized by. And then he's going to describe the righteous person metaphorically. 
So we got a negative description, a positive description, and a metaphorical description. Look again at verse 1. Blesses the man. Here's the negative description. He, he doesn't do a few things. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Here's the blessed, righteous person as opposed to the wicked, uh, wicked, cursed person. And what the psalmist is saying, the blessed, righteous person is not like the wicked, cursed person. The wicked person, by the very progression of the physical activity, is slowly grinding to a halt. There's a walking, there's a standing, and then there's a sitting. He is slowly grinding to a halt, underscoring the fact that the author of Hebrews picks up in chapter 2, let us then give more careful attention to the things we have heard, lest what? We drift away. No neutrality in life. There's always a constant either progression or regression. And this wicked man is grinding to a halt. He begins by walking in the counsel of the wicked, meaning he picks up the advice and the perspectives and the values, and we would say the worldview of the ungodly. This righteous, blessed person doesn't do that. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't consider sin as a viable option. He's not walking in the counsel of the wicked. The wicked person continues, though, and... he not only walks in the counsel of the wicked, not only is, is, is considering sin, he then begins to commit sin. And that's what the phrase, he does not stand in the way of sinners, is referring to. Now, to stand in someone's way, when we typically use it in our English usage, means we're going to hinder them. That's not what this phrase means. This is more of the Robin Hood and Little John meet on the bridge, and, and uh, they're... they're, they're uh, uh, they're not, excuse me, this is not like Robin Hood and Little John on the bridge. They're going to, one of them is going to fall off. No, this means, to stand in the way of sinners means to, to, to stand in the shoes of the sinners. So, first, walking to the counsel of the wicked, we're, we're considering sin. Now, standing in the way of sinners, we're, we're actually committing sin. We're actually doing what sinners do. We are adopting lifestyles and habits and Patterns of conduct that are contrary to the revealed word of God. We're no longer just considering sin. We're comfortable with sin. We're behaving like sinners. And if the wicked person continues to do this long enough, they descend into the abyss of those who sit in the seat of scoffers. Here it's no longer just a consideration of sin. It's no longer just a comfortability with sin. Now there's a commitment to sin. They have participated in so much that is godless that now they not only continue to do those things, as Romans 1 tells us, but they also give hearty approval of those who do the same thing. Considering comfortable and now they are committed to sin. Spurgeon said this about this person. At this point, he has his masters in worthlessness and his doctorate in damnation. So, that's the righteous person described negatively. He doesn't walk. He doesn't stand. He doesn't sit. It's kind of like if you're at a football game 
And let's say you need to go get a hot dog or popcorn, go into the concession stand. You're sitting over where your team is. You got your team's jersey on. But the concession stand is where the other team is sitting, right? So you begin to go over there. And as you're going over there, you're saying, I, I don't even want to get contaminated with, you know, these fans here. I'm not going to mention a team name. I'm just going to walk to the concession stand, right? And so you're walking through and you begin to notice a few things about different uh, slogans and, and different uh, things that the opposing team is saying. You say, well, I, I understand what the person's coming from with that. And then you see someone you recognize. They said, hey, friend, stop for a second. And so you, you, you stop and you, you're standing up. You're talking with the guys. I'm just on my way to get a hot dog. I mean, don't, don't get the wrong idea. Yeah, 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 okay. And then you keep talking and you're standing and you're talking. And then all of a sudden you say, you know what? Hugh's a lot better from over here. Let me just sit down here. And you guys got it right after all. It's like, I'll start cheering for your side. That's the progression. That's the negative description of the righteous man. He's not like that. He's not like that. J.C. Ryle said this, The ways, the fashions, amusements, and recreations of the world have a continually decreasing place. In the heart of a growing Christian. I love that phrase. There is a continually decreasing place in the heart of a growing Christian. He feels they have a constantly diminishing hold on his own affections and gradually seem smaller and more trifling in his eyes. It's like the character Eustace, right, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader for Narnia fans, where, remember, Eustace was, was changed into a dragon. I think your pastor even mentioned this the last time I was here. And when Aslan, quote, undragoned him, and remember what the author says, that this nasty boy, this Eustace character who became a dragon, because that's what his heart was like, he was undragoned by the Christ-like figure Aslan. And the, the, the narrator says, I, I would like to say that everything went on uh, just peachy and smooth, and he was a completely changed guy. He said, however, that wouldn't be true to the story. But what does he say? The cure had begun, Right? For the righteous person, for the blessed person, the cure begins at salvation and gradually continues and continues. So that's the righteous person described negatively. And here the, the, psalm, the psalmist throws us a little curveball. Because if you know anything about Hebrew poetry, you know Hebrew poetry loves to use parallelisms, right? So it, it, will, it will say one thing. And then it will neatly say something else using the same categories that it just said. But the second verse of the psalm doesn't exactly say that. You see, you would have thought, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You would have thought, but he, what, walks in the counsel of the, uh, of the godly and, and, and stands in the way of the of the moral and, and sits in the seat of the grateful or something like that. But that's not what he said. What does he say in verse 2? Blessed is this man who doesn't do these things, verse 2, but what? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. There's just one positive criteria and it's sufficient there's just one thing needful to say and it's sufficient there's a couple of things the righteous person doesn't do let me tell you the overriding thing he does do he delights 
and meditates in this book. This book, which Pastor Robert Chapman in England about 200 years ago said, this book which reveals the mind of God, the state of sinners, and the happiness of believers. This, this book is a, a, uh, the a traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, and the soldier's sword. It should fill your memory, test your heart, and guide your feet. Read it slowly, read it frequently, read it prayerfully. It's a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and condemns all who trifle with its sacred contents. Christ is its grand subject. Our good is design, and the glory of God its end. It's this book, right? This is the only book in the universe that when we read it, it reads us. <laughs> and that's the only criteria necessary. This book, which the New Testament picks up on, says every word of God, what is, uh, all scripture is God breathed, right? And it's profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness that the people of God will be perfected. Adequately equipped for every good work. Jesus said it, John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them. Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Paul, the very last thing he tells those Ephesian elders when he meets them in Miletus in Acts chapter 20. You remember what he told them in Acts chapter 20, verse 32? He reminds them, there's the one criteria. I now commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. And there's the connection, inheritance. That bespeaks of blessing. It is the word. The word is the only criteria needed. Where one delights in the word of God, constantly meditating on it, there one learns good counsel. Where one delights in the word of God, constantly meditating on it, there one's conduct is shaped by God's revelation. Where one delights in the word of God, constantly meditating on it, there one does nurture the grace of gratitude and every other grace. The Bible is sufficient criteria. But let's ask this question. What does it mean to delight? What does it mean to meditate? Because the psalmist is using those almost interchangeably. There is the parallelism there, right? He delights in the law of the Lord. And by law of the Lord, the Hebrew word Torah means the instruction of the Lord. We could say the Bible, right? He delights in it. Well, how do you know he is delighting in it? Because he's meditating on it. Well, why is he meditating on it? Well, because he delights in it. So what does that mean? What does it mean to do that? The Hebrew word for meditate really, really just means mutter, right? <laughs> How many of your spouses go around the house muttering to themselves all day? You don't have to answer, please don't. That's biblical, right? That's biblical. Don't get upset or don't let that be annoying. That's biblical, just muttering, muttering, muttering. Muttering the word to yourself, constantly chewing on it. One of my favorite pastors, Eugene Peterson, puts it this way. He was telling the story about a dog he used to own, and he was describing the way the dog would greedily take a bone and chew on it. Here's what he said. He says, anyone who's owned a dog knows the routine. 
This dog would prance and gamble playfully before us with his prize, wagging his tail, proud of his find, courting our approval. And of course, we approved. We lavished praise, telling him what a good dog he was. But after a while, sated with our applause, get this, he would drag the bone off 20 yards or so to a more private place, usually the shade of a large moss-covered boulder, and he would go to work on the bone. The social aspects of the bone were behind him. Now the pleasure became solitary. He gnawed the bone, turned it over and around, licked it, worried it. Sometimes we could hear a low rumble or growl, what in a cat would be a purr. He was obviously enjoying himself and in no hurry. After a leisurely couple of hours, he would bury it and return the next day to take it up again. An average bone lasted about a week. <laughs> and a great description of what our appetite and delight for this book should be. You ever been accused of licking the word? No, no, no. You ever been accused of worrying the word? Man, he's just wearing that thing. He is just, he is going over it. He's asking you questions. Like, he's always talking about it. He's thinking about it. You ever been accused? You ever found yourself saying, that was great. It was a great social experience. Even in corporate worship, I'm glad we gathered together. That's important, right? But, but now... I find a, I'm compelled to tuck myself away. We can call it quiet time. We can call it devotion. We, we can call it talk time, time alone with God, whatever you want to call it. But the key is, are we giving ourselves enough time to not be concerned with time? <laughs> it's a good advice I heard sometimes a pastor was asked this question, how much time do you devote to your devotional life? And he said, well, I just know I need enough time to lose track of time. I need enough time to lose track of time. Sometimes that could be 20 minutes. I just lose myself in a word or a verse or a text. Sometimes it's multiple hours. But that's the key. Are, are, are we baking the word into our hearts so that as Romans 12 tells us, we're, we're being transformed by it. We're not talking about zombie-like, you know, rote memorization. I'm sure you've been to enough Bible drill-like things, and I've served enough Awana-type experiences, and I love those, and I think we need to continue to do those. Those are means by which this end, I think, happens. But, you know, sometimes I've been in these Awana-type, hey, Bible verse recitation places, and it's like, all right, John 3, 16, for God's will, give your life. I'm like, whoa, what? What did you say? Are you speaking English? Wait, what did you say? You're like, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever will believe in. You're like, whoa, no, whoa, whoa, what are we doing? Blesses the man who delights in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates. We're not talking about slinging out um, counter spells, you know, when we face temptation, you know. Uh, man, I'm worried. Oh, you know, expecto Philippians 4, 6 or something, you know, which... It's good to memorize those, those verses and specifically, but it, it's more than just a tit for tat, like I need this verse for this situation. It's, no, man, this is food. Like, this is what the righteous one, the one who is blessed, delights in, not just stockpiling information. We're feasting, 
for transformation. That's meditation. As Richard Baxter said, fixing your mind on a particular truth, speaking to your own heart about it until God comes near to you and you sense his presence. Well, that's the positive description. Let's look finally at the metaphorical description. What is this righteous, blessed person like? He is like a tree. He's like a tree. And notice what kind of tree. This tree is planted by streams of water. They're certainly the water referring to the word. He's planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. No matter what season you may be in, if you are delighting in, meditating on, being transformed by the word, two things are going to happen. First of all, you're going to bear fruit. And you think about that, fruit is not for the tree itself necessarily, right? Fruit is ultimately for someone else. <laughs> when you are meditating on, delighting in, being transformed by this word, guess what? Other people are going to be benefited. Those people in your spheres of influence, they are going to be blessed by you. You'll be like a tree where you are not just absorbing, you are extending. And you're going to prosper. That's what it means when it says its leaf does not wither. All God's trees are evergreens. And again, that may does not mitigate trials at times or valleys. It just means in the trials and the valleys, there will still be sap in the tree. The tree will not wither. Now, those are the two paths, the, the wicked and the righteous, the blessed one and the Cursed one. And this is so. Verse 5, it says, The wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. This is so because, verse 6, because the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That's what's key in the whole psalm, I think. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. And that word knows there is really pregnant with the gospel, isn't it? Jesus prayed in his great high priestly prayer, John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know, when it says the Lord knows the way of the righteous, it doesn't mean he's just aware of the righteous. But certainly he's aware of the wicked as well. No, this is a much deeper word. It's an intimate word. This knowledge means that the Lord has firsthand, deep, intimate relationship. There is an experiential bond between the Lord and this righteous person. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. That's the key. Does the Lord know us? Does the Lord know us? Now, I said that's pregnant with the gospel, and that's, that's true. Because ultimately, as we're reading the psalm, we, we, should, we should ultimately say, well, Lord, I I've read Romans 3, right? No one's righteous, no, not one. I know I'm not righteous in and of myself. And it reminds me, uh, in seminary, your pastor and I went to seminary at the same time and uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, Southern Seminary. At the, that time, there were a couple of different Hebrew professors. And I remember someone was telling me, if you, if you really want to know Hebrew, 
I mean, you really want to get it. I mean, if you really want Hebrew and you want to work hard, I'm talking morning and evening, work hard and really learn it, you take Dr. Fuller. And I said, who else teaches Hebrew? (laughs) KJ probably took Dr. Fuller. I took the guy that they said, if you just you take him, you'll work decently, and you may learn it a little bit enough to use the tools. I'm like, that's me. Sign me up for that guy. But I did take Dr. Fuller for an English class on the Psalms. And I remember he's teaching, and you know, you've always got that one guy in the class. Yeah, keep shooting the hand up. Dr. Fuller answered this person's question. You know, they always got some kind of technical, you know, like, you know, given the fact that there is transubstantiation, consubstantiation, and other views around communion, how exactly are we to understand the JEDP theory of the Old Testament expectancy? You know, just like, ah. I've grown out of that, trust me. It's, it's no longer a problem. I'm kidding. It wasn't. Anyways, this guy asked this question. He said, Dr. Fuller, how many messianic psalms are there? Because I know it's divided up into five different books, the Psalter, and towards the book five, and he just said 150. He said, no, 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 I'm talking about like, like messianic psalms, like they're talking about Jesus. He said, 150. It's 150 messianic psalms. All 150 point us to Jesus. Because you're right. If, you, if you've asked the question that I asked reading this psalm, I'm not righteous. Well, who is the blessed man who never walked in the counsel of the wicked? Or stood in the shoes of sinners? Or sat in the seat of scoffers? Who is he? Because I, like the song says, I, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out amongst the scoffers. It is Christ. Christ is the righteous one. He is the righteous man of Psalm 1. And here's where Psalm 2 comes. I know a few of you are about to stand up. Some of the ancient texts put Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together. One introductory psalm. We don't know for sure, but it's probably true that David wrote both of these psalms. David typically, when he begins a psalm with blessed, he likes to close his psalms with blessed. If you'll notice in Psalm 1-1, the first word is blessed. Notice what the last verse of Psalm 2, how it reads. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Who is the Him that Psalm 2 is talking about? Well, Psalm 2 uh, takes the unrighteous person, the wicked person, and puts it at the cosmic level. And now we got got nations of unrighteous people. And they are revolting against the one true God. And God in Psalm 2 says in verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. That's who he's talking about in verse 12. This king is the one who will bring the nations into subjection to him. He will rule them and dash them with a rod of iron. Verse 10 of Psalm 2 is therefore what we need to hear. Now, therefore, O kings, and all of us be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. That's the, the kiss of uh, 
obeisance or allegiance. The, 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 the king extending out the ring and you kiss it, swearing allegiance to him. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Here it is. Blessed. Oh, the deep-seated happiness and contentment of those who take refuge in him. The righteous man of Psalm 1 is the reigning king of Psalm 2 and we then find our righteousness derivative from him if we take refuge in him. In just a minute, we'll sing about the high king of heaven. And be thou my vision, high king of heaven, my victory won. He's won the victory for us on the cross, right? He's won the victory so that now, unrighteous though we are, we may come to him as these unrighteous, gangly, naughty branches. And here's the sweetness of the gospel. We can be John 15 grafted into him, the true vine, and held tight by his gospel-saturated word that serves as the sap by which we will never be separated from his love. Blessed are those who take refuge in this high king of heaven can't delight in God's law with a dead heart. I hope you don't hear this sermon and hear, all right, this is a go out of here sermon and, and learn more scripture. I hope there's part of that. But first, but first, let's go out of here and take refuge in Jesus. He is the righteous one. He is the true vine. And by faith, I can be his branch. Let's pray together. Father, said we wanted to speak to a few people. And now, Lord, we pray you would speak. As you already have through your word, may you continue as the Spirit applies this word to our hearts. Be our vision, be our wisdom, be our all in all, Lord Jesus. Be our high King of heaven as we place our faith in you. Take refuge under the shelter of your wings and find the gospel sap nourishing, producing fruit in us and making it so that we, Lord, will never be cast out of the congregation of the righteous. But Lord, we will stand by faith. May that be our song. May that be our story. We pray in Christ's name.